The regulars are coming out. Sounds like what I would say around 3 a.m. when I lived above a seedy nautical-themed bar in downtown Los Angeles. But according to those that have looked into it, these are the words good old Paul Revere, in his dashing tricorned hat, likely spoke as he attempted to warn John Hancock and Sam Adams of the impending attack by the British Army. And contrary to the way it has been portrayed in countless elementary school productions of The Midnight Bride, it was likely more of a rushed whisper than a roar. You see, just like in second marriages, revolution requires discretion. It took a skilled writer to really tweak that rider's words and cement its place in our imaginations. Regulars became redcoats, a much more vivid scene, and the whole phrase tightened so that it was clear, catchy, and most of all, enduring. Myths are powerful things, and like lichens or other symbiotic organisms, when fact meets fantasy, it can become hard to tell where one ends and the other begins. They rely on each other to grow, and they become so intertwined that trying to separate one from the other can lead to the destruction of both. We have a vested interest in the survival of myths. It helps us define who we are, gives us clarity of purpose. A myth can comfort in times of uncertainty, and humans, from the start, have been staring into nothing but the immense dark abyss of uncertainty. How do we explain our surroundings, the forces that act upon us, invisible diseases carried on the wind, or the fact that one day your partner's not there in the morning, and even though you were making progress in couples therapy and had what you consider a good conversation about boundaries, you have to read a note before you've even had your coffee that says, I'm sorry, I can't. And you're just supposed to go on with life as if nothing has changed? We have to tell ourselves stories to get a grasp on things. I like to think someone looked at a shirt and thought, why does it stop there? The neck should keep going. And that's how turtlenecks were born. Some myths are more powerful than others. Some are just lies. We're going to figure it all out. Myths, uncertainty, things which frighten us, all of this and more right now when we step through the portal that leads us to the deep night. Oh, fringe. Hello. Hello. It's me, Dale Seaver, and I'm so pleased to be your host, guide, and guru for this next hour of regrets and revelations we call the Deep Night. We come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. And even our fair Gowani has a touch of inauguration fever. Yes, in a celebratory gesture, I tossed a Biden bobblehead into the canal. And I could swear the flames that consumed it before it sunk into the fetid stench of the waters were red, white, and blue. There's a tiny shift, a little quickening in our walk, in our breath, in our outlook today, as we finally see what we hope is the end of a terrible time in American history. 
And, of course, the work continues to mend and heal, but, goddess, it feels good to experience optimism again. Part of my personal good mood has to do with our guest today, someone who I've long admired and was happy to have the chance to speak with. Verity Clayton is behind the elusive host character that leads people through the Scary Stories podcast, shining a light into that which startles us, pushes us away, and shakes us to our core. She's been investigating how people respond to fear and the unknown. Through that process, she's brought her academic training and interest in cognitive function to illuminate the reasons we are the way we are. And in this time where we can so clearly see the limits uh, and power of storytelling, a fabrication where myths inspire and incite in equal measure, I wanted to have her on to talk about the role of myths in our collective evolution, the founding myths of America, and the myths that we use to define ourselves. Verity was so gracious to join me from her home in the UK at a very late hour, which, of course, is the preferred hour to access the deep night. So let's go now to my conversation with the informative and informed Verity Clayton. Verity Clayton, welcome to the deep night. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Absolutely. <laughs> Joining me uh, via uh, internet telephony, beaming across the Atlantic as you are over there in the UK. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it uh, fun when the future arrives and it's uh, just ordinary? You know, we once thought that video phones and calls would be just a dream and now it's a little bit of a hassle. <laughs> Not what I expected the future to be. Um, now, uh, Verity, I'm so uh, pleased. You have no idea that you could join me uh, tonight. And uh, uh, I think that we're going to have a timely conversation and perhaps a timeless one as well. <laughs> we'll see. But I must ask you the question I ask all of my guests to start with, which is, would you be interested in joining a commune I've started here in Brooklyn? Yes, definitely. Great. Who, who wouldn't want to join a commune? <laughs> no, exactly. It's uh, it's all the stuff that you might find in a cult, but there's no uh, exertion of power. We're just trying to help each other with some chores. You know, it's mostly some light weeding that's involved. <laughs> that's involved. Ah, well, that's a big relief. Thank you. I'm glad. Sometimes people think they hesitate a little bit, but I'm, I appreciate you jumping right into it. Oh yeah, all on board. I mean, <laughs> worrying. Because you had to then tell me it wasn't a cult, and I was already on board. You could have been like, it's a full-on cult, but... Yeah, no, I've just had the experience where people start to get a little bit worried, and I just want to dispel that right off the top of, <laughs> of the show. That's not what this is. Maybe a cult of turtleneck enthusiasts, but that's, a, <laughs> that's about as far as we go. Um, so that's great. I'll sign you up, and uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll figure out the next steps. Um now, uh, Verity, I know you uh, from your wonderful podcast, Scary Stories Podcast, uh, uh, which is terrific. And on that program, you cover a, a lot of spooky subjects uh, from spirit possession to pandemics. Uh, you explore in a, a very uh, steady and I would say straightforward uh, manner uh, our collective fears, don't you? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, the main focus of it is just looking at the things we're scared of, but not necessarily the really common things that people think of, but just all the kind of little phobias and creeps that we all have. 
Yes, that which is lurking in the darkness. <laughs> are, are you afraid of a great many things? Are you somebody that carries around a lot of fear? None. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I don't like, uh, I mean, other than like just normal human stuff, um, I'm terrified of death, which I think is a super normal human response. And other than that, I don't have any fears. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're going to pick one, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it probably makes it a little easier to get through the day, um, <laughs> although, gosh, constantly lurking out there. Did uh, processing through a lot of these uh, things that people are scared of uh, help you in any way? Um, I think it's the opposite. I think I could... It was harmful to people. <laughs> I think I harmful could... to you. <laughs> I think I could do, I could do it because... Um, I'm not scared of those things, so I can go to those places uh, just much easier because it doesn't bother me. Yes, it didn't seem like it bothered you in the uh, in the product <laughs> or the in the podcast because you 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 have a very uh, calm and soothing way uh, yeah. of delivering the information, uh, and to the point that sometimes it was unnerving. <laughs> I have been told by people that they kind of fall asleep. And then they're suddenly like, I've just had these awful dreams. Because <laughs> <laughs> what I've been saying. But, um, yeah, I think I think my point isn't to like terrify people. It's to show them the things that are unsettling. And, and I guess show them that half the things that we think are scary aren't. And the things that we don't think about are actually the really scary things. Like generally how terrible humans are. <laughs> Right. Well, that's a big, a big, uh, certainly on our minds of late, uh, uh, and uh, and and during this moment of pandemic, uh, that that's got that was terribly scary. And I think it's I'm amazed how quickly I've adjusted to my fear levels. Uh, if you compare it to going into it in March, where you were really afraid, at least here in New York, you were afraid of the air and every surface, and it was palpable. Yeah, I think in the UK we're back there because of all these new strains and we've suddenly gone into a really severe lockdown. Um, yeah. I think in March people were kind of uncertain, but I think everyone was just like, okay, we're going to rally together. And now everyone's just terrified. I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there is, I think generally a lot of unease, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear in, in the world right now. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there always is, but it feels like now, <laughs> No, well, at least we have it directed in some ways, perhaps. Um, <laughs> and I, I do think, though, um, well, maybe it'll come back around. I was going to say I kind of moved past that fear, and now it's a little bit like Zoom calls, just kind of a nuisance. Uh, but for me, what has moved in and taken its place is more of the the loss and the grief and the mourning. It still has not that for me has not gone anywhere. And when I still go outside to take a walk around the block or something, I'm overcome still emotionally. It's very difficult for me. Yeah, it's um, it's a really tricky one. And I think it's going to take a long time of processing any of this because I don't think we really understand any of the toll it's taken. Like, I think it will take a few years out of this before we start processing anything reasonably. Yes, even just letting a little bit in is is, is a lot, uh, and becomes quickly overwhelming. Well, uh, sort of 
what we're talking about here, and and one of the things I appreciated about your uh, about your show, and still appreciate, is that you're able to give the listeners some perspective on things from that calm, fearless place <laughs> that you presented. And at the heart of everything, it seems, really, is human behavior, and and how we uh, move through the world. Where did that fascination with how we all interact and behave come from? Um, so I'm an academic by trait. Um, and I am an anthropologist of religion Yes. and of the self. So I literally used to, I mean, teach courses on anthropology of the self and religion of the self. And it's all about those ideas, um, of how the mind works, how behavior works, um, the different ways that we interact with each other. So there are some really like interesting stories that I just, I, I, you know, I've used some of them in the podcast that, um, yeah, I just think are fascinating. Uh, and so I just, I was always super interested in that and yeah, just carried on in academia. I have my PhD and everything, um, you know, have done teaching for years. So, uh, I think, and then I just wanted <laughs> to do something more creative with that, yeah. uh, which is where that sort of came in. And help me with uh, religion of the self is really just how one person experiences their faith or their, how they set up their own belief systems, or it's a, a religion about oneself? Um, it's actually quite a tricky term. Um, anthropology of the self perhaps is better or clearer for people, but a lot of it's termed under religious studies. So it's looking at different kind of religious groups and cultures and understanding how they process their own sense of self and their own sense of spirituality and myth and origins. So it can be from um, the Trobriand Islanders, uh, which was you know, studied way back by um, Malinowski, who's you know, sort of godfather of anthropology, um, and their belief in the virgin birth for them, mm -hmm. not the Christian virgin birth, totally different one. Um, but their idea of the virgin birth that they completely deny, um, uh, sort of biological paternity and whether what's going on in, in that situation is whether they really believe that, whether they are completely ignorant of the ideas of like conception or whether it says something deeper about the self and how they actually structure their society. Um, other people, uh, sort of other groups that I've looked at are like the Dinka who do not discuss themselves as a, like as a self. So yeah. as having a mind, when they talk about um, the world, they talk about forces in the world these spirits acting upon them so if they're angry or something if they have these kind of thoughts it's that a spirit is acting upon them they have no internal sense of the self now again it's looking at that and kind of wondering whether that's true do we just take their word for it or is there a translation issues is it more of a cultural thing and so that's kind of where why it's kind of a religion of the self um right Right. Well, you know, I've been reading uh, uh, Merlin Sheldrake's book about the mushrooms and the fungal networks, the entangled <laughs> life, and 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 that uh, uh, <laughs> you know. What? I 
I literally just got that as a present um, from my mum, who is a philosopher, uh, also yeah. an academic, um, because she thought that I would find it so, <laughs> so fascinating. <laughs> yes. Well, I think you will. Uh, and certainly there's the, uh, uh, the idea within that that there is no such thing as an individual. Um, that everything is a collection of whether that's bacteria or in this case, in his case, sort of the fungal networks, that everything is reliant. You know, a plant can't just grow on its own, that whatever's involved in the soil and in its environment are all working together and, in fact, are very intertwined at an almost molecular level for it to succeed. And all life comes from that. An interesting idea that maybe problematizes the idea of self to begin with. <laughs> well. So the reason that uh, my mom got me this book is because one of the other things that I've studied and looked at is some really famous experiments done with psychotropics in the 60s when um, researchers could give people things and not tell them what they were giving them. So they gave a bunch of students <laughs> yes, <laughs> psychotropics and were like, hey, it's something else. Um, and you can't do those things anymore. Um, but they found out that actually the um, the group of people that they gave the psychotropics to along with a very positive, pleasant experience, because they also gave it to people and then kind of made someone aggressive around them. Mm. But um, the people who had the positive experience ended up having this long lasting um, kind of spiritual experience. And they actually followed up, I think, kind of at least 10 years later, but I think it might have been longer than that. They followed it up and it had just stayed with them throughout their life. And they, it had actually been a Christian seminary and those people had actually left Christianity kind of in a formal way, sort of stuck with the idea of Christianity, but it just become very, very spiritual. Um, and so it's kind of this idea that, that they kind of just got this sense of that there was this whole world that was bigger than them and more than them and that they were interconnected with it and part of it and it gave them this long-lasting spiritual experience so yeah there's also that yes forever altered yeah it's uh, that's amazing and gosh i i wish that uh i wish that i could have more time with that <laughs> to spend <laughs> uh, you know more time investigating that and and really honestly i'd like to experience it because Oh my gosh, sure. Expand my mind. Let me see the all the colors. <laughs> so, you know? um, I think it's in that one where they were saying that they did these tests. It's definitely in one of these books that I've got to read. Um, but they do these they've done these tests where they've um people who have I think it's like terminal cancer, but they've given them psychotropics and it has taken away their fear because they suddenly get that sort of spiritual experience and they've seen it actually psychotropics is this really useful sort of end of life experience that they can give people to come to terms with death. And honestly, that is the first thing I'm doing. If I am ever like, <laughs> Hey, you're going to die of this. I am like, okay, so where are the psychotropics? Right, bring them in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. Yep. Tea by the bag, whatever it takes. <laughs> bring them in here. Now, uh, where does the, do you think, you'd probably spend some time thinking about it, where does that fear of uh, of death and dying come from? Um, I mean, 
I I did a whole episode about it. I think it's Oh, just... I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, as in, I've had a lot of time to think about it. Um, yes. Uh, I think it's just natural, um, a natural human response to oblivion, that we are living sentient beings. And actually what we're all deeply scared of is not the afterlife, whether it's hell or heaven, we have these stories because we're really, really terrified of simply nothingness. It's so inconceivable to us. And it's almost too much for people to really look at because we have such a huge sense of self. And it's like this idea of the world existing before we did. It's, it is just inconceivable that the same is true. Um, and I, I think ultimately that's what I, I genuinely think that's what everyone is is scared of, unless they are just at one with the world and you know just being part of this network and not feeling so individualistic. Yeah, um, I often feel this is sort of rush to get things done uh, before I am no longer able to. Yeah, which I don't know is necessarily about death or not, but that is the. Th other than a kind of loss and being feel like I don't want to be left alone in the world, uh, that's what it comes down to is I have this uh, just a pressure uh, behind it to, to, to get stuff done. I, I think a really good way to look at those things and to for a lot of us is just simply to experience ourselves. I think at... Um, at a really fundamental level, we are just experiential beings and we pile all of these other things on top of things that we want to achieve, things that we want to do, places that we want to be. And it means that we do just feel pressured all the time. We're rushing. We're constantly trying to get to a point that even if we have defined it, we never really know if we've gotten there. Um, and I think that that rush, that pressure can all just be relieved by just simply experiencing the present moment. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That is the, that is a, a good thing to keep in mind. <laughs> and uh, of course, in this moment of lockdown and pandemic there, it's been actually difficult to stay in the moment, even though we've been afforded many, many moments. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And many with just ourselves or immediate uh, loved ones, but a lot of just time alone uh, thinking through these things or feeling all of these things. And it leads me to my next question, I think, which is something you, you brought up too, which is how important the stories and myth-making sort of becomes around this as we try to explain the unexplainable, when we face oblivion, when we face tremendous fear or uh, uncertainty, that when the thing is unexplained, we fill that vacuum with our own tales and try to explain away that, the, in fact, it's very helpful to think it's the back of a giant turtle and our ancestors are the stars, right? So I have, my PhD is actually in myth um, and uh, specifically um, the Declaration of Independence as American. I've heard of it. Um, <laughs> strange yes. there. Um, as American, as America's sort of um, founding myth, sort of birth myth, almost like the sort of Greek myths um 
and how that's been used throughout America's political history in particular. So I have looked at lots of different theories of myth and at its core, myth is just, as you say, a story that we, that we say that we believe tenaciously. We hold on to that. We really take it to our core. And then there are different, you have all these different theorists who say that myth has various different functions. Um, and it's kind of what, what we think those stories do for us. But yes, that ultimately we have a, we have a place, something that needs to be filled by the function of myth. And so we tell these very, very powerful stories that we believe in and we hold, um, as sacrosanct. So, and are you, as someone who has studied this with the intensity that you have, are you at all surprised at how flimsy reality has turned out to be? <laughs> no. no. Um, <laughs> I actually uh, completed my PhD just after um, Trump got in, actually. Is that? Mm -hmm. Maybe a little bit, uh, maybe like nine months or so after. Trump got in was when I kind of completed it. And I, so my, my idea of myth, I follow Malinowski and his belief that myth is um, the function of, there are two types of myth. There are myths of natural phenomena. So myths of death, birth, all of those things. Um, they are simply, we make those stories up because it just tells us that nothing can be changed. So his idea of the myth of death is that um, we'll tell these stories about why we die. You know, for example, like uh, in, even in Christianity, um, the Garden of Eden. And it's so random, the reason why humans lose their ability to, to live forever. It's just, it's so arbitrary. It's like, ah, you did something I disagree with. So it's done. Um, and he, Malinowski says, right, those myths are look, it can't be changed. It was done so long ago. We lost that ability so long ago. It doesn't matter whether it's arbitrary. We just lost it. So for such a long time, we haven't been able to do it. You can't change it. And then he says that the myth of kind of social systems are to make us adhere to the status quo. So that's what I've used and looked at the Declaration of Independence for is that people invoke it to just go, look, this is the way it's long been in America. So it has to continue that way. And they've done it for really positive reasons, um, you know, to kind of, uh, for example, I, I studied all of the um, Lincoln-Douglas debates and mm -hmm. Lincoln constantly used the Declaration of Independence and said, at its core, you know, we were all born free, we're all equal. That's what America stands for. That's what's always done. The fact that it's been corrupted is neither here nor there. That's that's our founding myth. So he used the he kind of appealed to a status quo to actually overturn, you know, the the real status quo that had been going on in the um, in the southern states. So there's really interesting dynamics at play. Um, but I had actually started so i was studying all of this over the stuff with trump and i was like what's really interesting is that all of the american presidents i mean i have charts and charts and charts on this all the american presidents <laughs> up until trump endlessly spoke about the declaration of independence and all they were doing was hey look 
go for me. I am a traditional candidate. And he didn't speak about it once, which was almost unheard of. Like I, I, no other president had been like that or kind of presidential candidate. And Clinton, as her response, went on the same talking points as him. And so at the time I said, I think that's a bad strategy because she doesn't look traditional. Okay. You know, she's, she's mm -hmm. breaking with tradition as much as he is, but everyone knows he's not traditional. And there are lots and lots and lots of reasons that he got in and she didn't. I'm not saying that that's the one I'm saying that it was, it was showing that there was a bit of a, a turn here. And I think once you start doing that and you carry on going, going kind of down the route of Trump and doing what say Republicans have done, which is just abandoning some of these traditions, then it's very, very easy for that status quo to be very quickly overturned, which I think is kind of some of what you're seeing now. Yes, you're so far away from what the actual thing is that uh, the actual thing is easily uh, subverted, perverted, yeah. uh, changed, thought of as no longer normal. Um, it's, uh, it's, and, and I mean, that person, uh, our outgoing president, uh, is uh, almost entirely myth. <laughs> I don't, uh, it's no surprise he probably never read the Declaration of Independence. Uh, I, I'm, I would be surprised if he even knew really what it was. And, uh, but I mean, a person who is solely invested in uh, the outward appearance, the story, the never being a loser, only being a winner, never conceding, all of this stuff. It's just to have someone so fully wrapped up into that has gotten us to where we are, uh, which thankfully, I hope, is uh, starting to end. Although you certainly had something over there, too, with the Brexit business, which was also a bit of a fairy tale concocted uh, by some people, as I understand it. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Brexit is terrible. Uh, yes. I mean, I think it's um, morally bankrupt to do such a thing when we're in the middle of a pandemic and people are already really struggling and people are losing their jobs. Uh, you've already started to see prices of groceries just start to go up slightly already yeah. just because of those extra tariffs that we've got. And it, it was absurd. I mean, I think it was this idea of this kind of Great Britain, even though it wasn't, I mean, my parents were speak about the time before um, we were part of the EU, like it was terrible. <laughs> that wasn't a good time for the UK. Um, and also people didn't seem to really, you know, people kept speaking about immigration and yet the people that they were worried about immigrating had nothing to do with the EU. I mean, number one, it's just it's just racism and it's just stoking fears of the foreigner. It's xenophobia. But aside from all of those other points, it's also weirdly misdirected at the EU, whereas that's not even who they're worried about. You know, that's, right. they're not the asylum seekers. So <laughs> right. it hasn't changed what they're even kind of foolishly scared of. It's a very uh, weird time. <laughs> strange. <laughs> it's a strange time. And with any of those myths, obviously you have to say, okay, well, what is it? 
uh, not addressing. And thankfully, a lot of people have been holding that up now as a question to ourselves to say, okay, well, yes, we can go along with the story. We can go along with the things that we've been taught. All along. And I'm not talking about inventing conspiracy theories. I'm saying, what are the other perspectives that were present at that moment? Let us also consider that so we have some truth to support and to fill in around these fantasies that impact us <laughs> in such profound ways. But um, let me ask you about the personal bit of myth-making uh, that you are involved in, which is as the host of the show, you kind of uh, pushed a persona out there. Um, first of all, fascinated about what that's like. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand it. How do you keep it straight? And second, uh, uh, it's the, the character, how did you land on that one? Because uh, the elusive host, as you uh, call them, is uh, uh, perhaps a little femme fatale. Uh, seems like maybe she inherited a house on a rocky hill, maybe carries a vial of blood around her neck. How did you land on that uh, <laughs> character? Um, I, it, so originally when I started doing it, um, I've done teaching for a lot of years and when you teach and you want people to really listen to what you have to say for a long period of time, cause you're sometimes teaching classes that are two hours, um, you, you really need to have a nice soft voice. So I naturally learned to kind of just lower my tone really soft so that people can really tune into the words that you're saying. Um, I also have a bit of a strange accent naturally. Um, it's, I get a lot of people who aren't American assuming that I'm American or Canadian. Um, I get people thinking that I'm Australian or I'm European, um, you know, like maybe Swedish or something. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm originally from Scotland. Um, that's, that's what I would have said. <laughs> 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 so yeah i'm originally from scotland but my family my parents are from england um and i've traveled around a lot i lived in cairo i lived in philly for a while um so i ended up with just a slightly mixed accent so i was like right my but my natural like my default is to have a slightly more english tone because i just took after my parents a bit more yes um so again i just softened my accent a little bit <laughs> Um, so that it was just a bit more, I didn't have people confused for the entire 30 minutes going, where is she from? Which I get <laughs> quite a lot. Like I have entire conversations with people where they don't actually listen to a word I say, they just try and figure out where I'm from. Uh, so that's where kind of the voice came from. And I think the persona, um, I have to apologize. That's my cat being oh. very, very rude and trying to get into, into the room. Eager to speak up. <laughs> um, so but can the, I, let me let me also interrupt and just say, uh, as somebody who grew up outside of Philadelphia, thank goodness you didn't pull that accent uh, into your <laughs> <laughs> into the uh, idea here, because I don't know if I could make it through uh, hours <laughs> of listening about my deepest fears, as told to me by somebody with a heavy Philadelphia accent. Anyway. Um, so I think I think with the the kind of voice that I just think I, I tend to slip into, it's what I do when I'm teaching or I'm reading a story or anything. Um, that just kind of lent itself quite well. It just sounds a bit more mysterious. I'm also just happened to be quite a private person. I never had a single social media account until I started the podcast. No Facebook, Twitter, nothing. 
So I was very conscious that I just didn't want to be, I just didn't want my life or anything about me as a person anywhere really online. And so I just thought, okay, like I'll just keep it. So I'm just this kind of narrator almost. And then um, someone else actually uh, a couple of weeks in, maybe three weeks in said, oh, you're very elusive. And it just kind of stuck with me um, that it kind of worked. And then there's the play on elusive and how it's spelt because the whole thing that I'm doing are sort of urban legends and fears and illusion. Um, and so it just kind of came about as, as just this character that kind of fit really well. And I think, again, just enhances those stories and the feeling that the podcast is all about. Yes. Um, well, I would uh, point, there was one uh, episode you did about cults, in fact. And the, the way that you start that program is uh, asking a question, what would you do for me? And then there's this chasm of a pause uh, <laughs> that happens right after. And there's always a moment in listening to the show where I, uh, I get a kind of a, have to catch my breath. There's a little bit of a chill that runs down the spine, you know. But that uh, pause right there, I thought, ooh, I'm being really challenged here to answer this this question. That's why I'd be so susceptible to maybe joining a cult because my urge is to rush in and say, well, uh, how can I help? But um, it also seemed uh, maybe with the space episode, um, which just is very frightening to me, uh, the, the, un, the unknowableness of space and how one would die in space. Um, but it seems like you're drawing on some maybe even theatrical or meditation exercises um, of grounding oneself and being centered and, uh, as you said, in the moment. Is there some theatrical background as well coming into play? No. Uh, it hmm. all just happened really organically um i like i said my background's completely in academia i mean i've spent my entire sort of career there um and yeah i just i just kind of developed sort of worked practiced over the episodes um and then uh because of people's response uh like listeners responses to the show a lot of people said oh you know very hypnotic it allows me to get to sleep um and i find it soothing but you know very scary what i find and particularly the some of the stories that i do particularly at the beginning people like i find it kind of terrifying because i feel like i'm being hypnotized and actually it's a really unpleasant story that i'm being given and i think that's where this kind of idea of sort of as you said this kind of grounding exercise sort of meditative element that started to come in because the more people kind of mentioned it the more i started really paying attention to those elements and kind of uh, enhanced it a little bit maybe yes <laughs> yes um and uh, well that speaks perhaps to this uh, moment now are you ending the podcast you're doing some kind of pivot right i'm not ending the podcast my okay, idea good. is the podcast carries on on the bi-weekly basis it hasn't i've had to take i, I mean i'm want to try and get the episode out as planned um unfortunately we had huge amounts of blackouts at the beginning of the year oh. um here it was it was really weird so i had like a week of blackouts um just every single night uh for you know from five in the afternoon till three in the morning um so of course that meant i couldn't do 
anything um, yes. with my for computer. The for the listener at home, uh, a blackout makes it very difficult to podcast. <laughs> if you didn't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get some like old timey, like kind of like winding, cycling. <laughs> yes. The crank podcast. Yes. So that made it difficult to do it. So but, that uh, made it difficult. And then with um, the lockdown and everything, as I'm sure everyone knows, your time just ends up very, very, very squeezed. So the podcast is hopefully carrying on um, as, you know, uh, we'll be on this sort of the biweekly um, basis. I think I just wanted to... I kind of just wanted to explore some of the um, the other things because people had said that it was sort of really soothing, that it was hypnotic. And then when I started asking people to submit their fears, people would submit them and then they would respond to me saying, I found that so therapeutic. It helped me face my fear. It really gave me that exposure. And of course, I was just like, that's not my intention. I'm not a therapist. Um, and I suddenly became quite interested in it. So I just spent last year because we all had a, a lot of strange time. Yes. So I spent last year um, training as a cognitive behavioral hypnotherapist as well. So the idea is that that will, you know, almost be the day job. Yeah. Um, a, and... a natural segue, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, because academia is just not a desperately fun place to be and I have two children um so I uh I, yeah I don't want to just always be away killing myself to go to conferences or write papers or so um so yeah so I wanted to do something else and I, I think I had the problem with the podcast in that I really like it being free to people and I really right. don't want you know I know there are so many legitimate ways to kind of do Patreon and everything. But I was like, I just really like that it's accessible to people. And I really like keeping it that way. And I got approached by a few sponsors. Um, actually, when I'd kind of taken a bit of a hiatus to finish off my uh, hypnotherapy. Um, and again, I just was like, oh, it works for so many other podcasts. But for mine, I don't even know where I'd put that in. It would ruin... <laughs> My entire <laughs> yes, little disruptive uh, to the mood to have a stamps dot com kind of thing come right in the middle, or uh, some kind of ma maybe mattresses, but uh, it's uh... <laughs> so so yeah. I think I think for me, I just I really love doing it. So that is to continue, but I also want to do something else, and I actually really like that anyone found the podcast helpful in any way. So if I can do that. For people genuinely, um, I also think that that's, yeah, just a really good thing to be able to do. Yeah. And uh, I guess I was wondering um, maybe more when I thought you were moving away from it, but uh, does it, certainly you've lived an authentic life <laughs> the whole rest of your life, so maybe this isn't an issue, but um, does it feel strange to kind of step away from that persona and engage with some of the same ideas, but as you? No, but I will tell you that the episode that I'm just finishing now is I actually thought it'd be fun because I've done this. I, I thought I'd do it on hypnosis because if you say you do hypnotherapy or hypnosis, a lot of people's natural response is to be kind of fearful of it. 
um, and to worry that you're going to make them be a chicken or leave them in a trance or do something like Darren Brown and make them pretend to go kill someone or something like that. Right, right. Um, the chicken so being I, the worst one of those, by oh, the way. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stuck that is probably did more damage. <laughs> whoever did that first, and maybe you know, but whoever did that first really did a disservice to hypnosis <laughs> uh, in general for generations. But, I mean, yeah, decades. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but that's what I'm finding difficult is that now that I can actually, now that I do the hypnotherapy, I, <laughs> it's trying not to do that in my show because I don't want to actually, you know, I, I just want to keep them slightly separate. And that's a bit more difficult because the whole reason that I even went down this path was because of what I was doing in the show. So I'm finding that a bit more, um, a bit more difficult. Yes. And it must be uh, terribly fulfilling and satisfying to have spent so much time investigating human behavior and now to be able to kind of use that knowledge in this uh, new pursuit. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely, so, uh, you know, NLP and, you know, uh, Freudian hypnosis. I am not any of that. I'm sure, as you know, I am a huge skeptic. I like things to be very, very evidence-based. So that's why um, what I'm doing is cognitive behavioral hypnotherapy. Um, and so in that way, uh, I think there are people who are very, very more traditionally therapeutic, perhaps very sort of uh, have more of the persona of a counselor. I do understand that when I am doing it, I'm quite philosophical because that just tends to be who I am. Um, mm -hmm. But I really like being able to use that to kind of, yeah, as you said, help people and kind of change, help them change their behavior um, in particular and their kind of thinking. Yeah. And do you think it's possible either through work like that or uh, conversations that happen because of that or uh, because of the other work that you've done to for for people to step away from the myth uh, i'm speaking i guess more globally and politically are we going to be able to sort of move things back to a reality place a place where we are helping one another that where we are having philosophical discussions and not just buying completely into fantasy I know, because I ultimately think we need myths. I think that they are fundamental to us. I think even when we think something is fact-based, those kind of deep-rooted belief systems we have as societies, um, they're actually not. And, and even the fact-based bit is kind of neither here nor there. It's our belief in it, how much we hold it to be true and to be important to us. And I think humans naturally need that. I think we need it for ourselves. And I think as a society, we need it. What I think is important is that we can construct those myths ourselves and we can, we can change them and affect them and we can make them much healthier ones that are the stories that we want to tell about ourselves. And if we tell those stories enough and we believe in them enough, then, you know, they can become the truth. And I think what's really important, you know, if you look at the stuff in um, America in particular, uh, America in particular, this um, kind of these last few weeks, they have been awful. Okay. They've been terrible. And the stuff that, uh, you know, this is talking as someone 
across the ocean, it's still, I cannot believe that these are scenes that I'm watching. So I cannot imagine what it's like for Americans. However, it's also been this idea that everyone, I mean, all I've seen is people speaking out about it. I've seen so many people saying, this is not who we are. This is not who we like, what we stand for. This is, we're meant to be this light of democracy around the world. We can't let this continue. And so I think when enough people, and they have because enough people voted for Biden, when that level of people really do want to embody that idea, because no, America could change at any single point. And America yeah. actually is not as traditional, this idea of like, oh, we're liberal or what? No, that's not the case. You look at the history and that's not true. But the fact that people believe it and really want it to be true, I think allows that space for a new, healthier myth to be made. I, I certainly hope so. And to me, I, I, I subscribe to the idea that it's kind of an extinction event, uh, kind of a, a, a big noise before something fades out uh, on some of these things that are really the outrageous ideas and these just uh, things that we are not. <laughs> I hope those things, this is a, a great bit of um, uh, noise that uh, is the last the last call for some of that uh, stuff. Um, and so I, I pin my hopes on that <laughs> and look to the future as one must. Um, even though your space episode scared me, it did get me thinking about that golden record and that uh, little Voyager space probe out there. Um, perhaps, uh, what do you think, would you like to visit with aliens? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, as in, I think we should probably be a lot more scared of aliens. If aliens are real, we should probably be terrified. Yeah. Um, I also just think that if they are real, if they do exist, and it's possible that they are so far away and they're probably doing all the things that we're doing to wipe themselves out. And if they're not, they're never going to travel here anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, but I also My... think when we look at the world we inhabit, it's incredible and it's full of life and creatures that are alien to us. You know, most of us, it, it, you know, it's what you were saying about that um, mythelial, uh, mythelial network and, um, you know, the, the biggest living organism is like a fungus. And most yeah. people don't know that, but it's incredible. And octopuses are amazing and basically aliens in totally. the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> Just... yeah, they came here on a rock of some kind. I'm convinced <laughs> to it, of it, yeah. Um, and I just think that the world we live in are, just is incredible and the creatures in it are incredible. And we spend all this time obsessing or hoping that there are aliens and we destroy our natural environment and we're kind of missing the opportunity to see the diverse ecosystem we are part of yes my takeaway then is that we uh, need to spend some time with ourselves we need to go deep into what we have and really understand it for what it is to appreciate the stories that we tell to get us through, but to not rely on them uh, uh, to, to, to live our lives. Yes, no, that's How perfect. Yeah. 
<laughs> Rarely is so much clarity afforded to me, so I, I attribute uh, this conversation to that and your uh, wonderful uh, time that you've given us uh, tonight, Verity. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. No, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I wish you all the success with uh, everything that you have going on, and hopefully we'll all be out of our lockdowns and uh, safe spaces and able to <laughs> see the world for all of its beauty again sometime soon. Yes, me too. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Oh, sometimes you just need an anthropologist to do a video call and set things straight. I'm so appreciative of Verity for spending some time with me. There's so many talented and dedicated people out in the world. It gives me hope that we can understand where we've come from and find some guidance for where we're headed. And aliens, if you're listening, I'd still be up for a visit. We'd love to hear your thoughts on a golden record we sent your way, but maybe we could do a Zoom call first. Kind of get a sense of one another, and then if you're here to plunder Earth, we can talk about it, or if you need some hypnosis to deal with the anxiety of space travel, as I imagine you must, I know a gal. Anyway, till that happens, we will continue to hold on to the hope that we have and hear Verity's call to go deep and do the work we need to do on ourselves in this amazing planet that still holds so much treasure to explore. I treasure you being here, and I wish you good health and safety in the week ahead. We'll be back next week, but until then, remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. I mean, you can feel it, can't you? Deep Night with Dale is produced and performed by James Bewley. Season theme song by Mariam Cadus of Space Moth. Season podcast icon by Philippa Beleza. Incidental music heard throughout the program by the talented roster at Howler Hills Farm in Ohio. Remember to rate and review the program on Apple Podcasts or tune in and stream the show on Spotify, SoundCloud, Pandora, or Stitcher, wherever you find fine audio content. To see any of our live shows or other short videos, visit our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Radio, and follow us on Instagram at Siever is the handle. Thanks again for listening, and remember this season to keep your portals open and at a safe distance. <laughs>